Welcome to the Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. We're continuing to tell the story of the Diatiki, and if you haven't listened to the previous episode, you probably want to go back and do that now. As always, maps and images from this episode and all the others can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions, you can ask them on the website or send an email to almostforgottenpodcast, one word, at gmail.com, or find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. This is episode 2.2, The Dyadache, Perdiccas and Eumenes, and this is The Almost Forgotten. pick up where we left off last time. That Athenian-led revolt, which they called the Hellenic War, had just ended. They had been defeated by the Macedonians, as had any semblance of Greek independence. The Hellenic War had started in the middle of 323 BC, just as news of Alexander's death reached Greece. Around the same time, that very same news reached a group of dissatisfied Greeks on the complete opposite end of the empire. They were garrisoned in a region known as Bactria, as well as the satrapy of Sogdia in Central Asia. It's today's northern Afghanistan, as well as parts of Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan. The Greeks who were stationed there really didn't want to be there. They were stuck trying to keep the peace in a newly conquered land that was filled with unwelcoming locals, and they were constantly threatened by guerrilla warfare. Sound familiar? At least 20,000 soldiers, mostly infantry, but some cavalry too, decided that they had their chance with Alexander's death to get out of the situation. How they coordinated this, scattered across dusty mud-brick outposts over a large region, isn't really clear. But however they did it, they began marching west. Maybe through the relatively barren territory, one group picked up and left, and as they stopped in fortress towns along the way, because those were the only places they could safely expect food and shelter, more and more joined their ranks. They were fleeing home to Greece, abandoning their distant stations out east. Perdiccas, still the regent of the empire, learned of this, and he summoned a fellow former bodyguard of Alexander's, a man named Python, to Babylon to take care of the issue. Python was the satrap of Media, a large region in the mountains and highlands of what is today northwest Iran, with Armenia and the Caspian Sea to the north and Babylon and Susa to the south. This satrapy controlled the roads and therefore the trade between east and west. At some point, if the Greeks wanted to make it home, they would have to pass through Media on their way to Greece. So Perdiccas gave Python some of his own troops and royal permission to raise thousands more. But he soon began to worry that Python would become too powerful. Python could use those forces to take control of Bactria and Sogdia, those upper satrapies, if he was so inclined. He had been loyal to Perdiccas since the death of Alexander, but would that last? Perdiccas wanted to make sure none of the rebels survived the battle, both as a lesson to others 
but also as a way to keep them out of Python's army. Python caught up to these Bactrian Greek rebels, but had arranged for at least some of them to disengage before the battle. The rest of the Greeks lost their nerve, and Python told them, well, they'd be spared if they surrendered. Python, who probably would have preferred these soldiers to be spared, just in case he wanted to incorporate them into his own army, told them they could go back to their garrisons. But the Macedonian troops that he brought with him intervened and attacked. It's not quite clear exactly how it happened. The two opposing sides may have actually begun mingling with each other before a signal was given and the Macedonians pounced. It is possible that Python himself, still loyal to Perdiccas, set the whole thing up, and later propaganda made him look more hopeful for their safe dismissal than what ended up happening. If he was looking to make a bid for power, it probably couldn't happen without the 20,000 Greeks. So he released the other soldiers that he had gathered up along the way and returned Perdiccas' troops as well, and he went back to leading his satrapy, his mission being complete. Perdiccas, though, did have a rival he needed to worry about. The man who had tried to take his solo regency back on day one, Ptolemy. So let's introduce this Ptolemy. As I mentioned the last time, Ptolemy was another bodyguard of Alexander's. The two had been close friends since Alexander was young, and apparently his name was probably pronounced Ptolemy in ancient Greek, but it's come down to us as Ptolemy, so I'll stick with that. Ptolemy was maybe a dozen years older than the other bodyguards, born around 367 BC. He was actually once exiled from Macedon when he advised Alexander to interfere in a marriage that Philip, his father, was arranging for Arhidaeus. When Alexander became king, Ptolemy was allowed back in the fold, and he was present at least at the second great victory against the Persians, the Battle of Issus. Despite being a bit older than most of the bodyguard crew, he didn't seem to be one of the leading generals of the Macedonian conquest. He might not have been seen as much of a soldier or a general, more of an advisor. However, by the end of the Indian campaign, he was more seasoned. Not only had he traveled across Asia and at the very least fought with the army during the conquest of Persia, but by the time they reached India, he was given some command roles himself. He had also endeared himself to Alexander by helping uncover a conspiracy against the emperor. After the death of Alexander, Ptolemy had been sent off to Egypt, one of the places where Alexander's acceptance of the local customs really was apparent. With a cultural history that made the Greeks, Macedonians, and Persians before them look like rookies when it came to civilization, giving their traditions deference was a good way to keep the population content. Cleomenes, the man Ptolemy was sent to replace, did not really care about such things. He embezzled, he was generally not well-liked, and he even extorted priests to bring him gold in order to not slaughter some religiously significant crocodiles that had pissed him off. Cleomenes gathered a significant amount of gold, but was well protected enough that he didn't face any risk from the native population. He was left there to keep an eye on Ptolemy by Perdiccas, and apparently didn't work to endear himself with his new commander either. Perhaps he thought the approval of Perdiccas would ensure his safety. Instead, at some point after arriving in 323, Ptolemy used one of 
Cleomenes's many crimes to put him on trial and have him killed. After that, Ptolemy essentially controlled Egypt as an independent state. To that end, he launched an attack to the west on Cyrenaica, an independent state in modern-day northeastern Libya. The whole thing started when Harpalus, that defector that had stolen 700 talents from Alexander and tried to ally with the Athenians, was killed by one of his mercenaries. I never really mentioned Harpalus anymore with the Hellenic War because he had never really gotten more involved in it other than showing up with all that money. The Athenians used some of his money to raise an army, but they threw him in prison as they were mulling over their next moves. He was able to escape, and he fled to Crete with a group of followers. A Spartan mercenary named Thimbron killed Harpalus and took the money and the soldiers Harpalus still had, and he tried to conquer the regional Cyrenaica capital of Cyrene. With the potential to pull in bigger regional powers such as Sicily and Carthage, a conflict just outside of Ptolemy's territory threatened to spill over, especially as Thimbron, through a series of victories and then setbacks and then more victories, held the city of Cyrene and even more mercenaries began to gather there. Ptolemy was able to use his newly acquired funds and position to send an army to Cyrene. His army took the city and it became a part of his satrapy, and technically a part of the Macedonian Empire, although I'm sure the other Diatiki might not have been entirely excited that he went off a conquering without consulting them first. Meanwhile, back in Western Asia, Perdiccas marched into Anatolia in 322 BC to help Eumenes take Cappadocia. If you recall, Eumenes was assigned Cappadocia, but it still had yet to be conquered. Leonidas had been preparing to help Eumenes, as Perdiccas had initially instructed the other satraps in the region to do, but he was killed by the Greeks before he had the chance. Antigonus, on the other hand, was less willing to help, so Perdiccas went and did it himself, defeating the rebellious Persians there and winning a couple of battles. Perdiccas's presence, though, may have been the real reason Craterus went over to Antipater in Greece. When Craterus, with 10,000 veterans, instructions to take them back to Europe, and maybe no real title, saw Perdiccas coming at the head of a massive royal army, he saw it as coming for him. So he took that time to cross over to help Antipater, and the rift between the sides began to grow. As this effort concluded, more Macedonian games of marriage alliances were playing out. In the fall of 322 BC, Philip II's daughter, Sinane, who was Alexander the Great's half-sister, and therefore not Olympias's daughter, inserted herself in the picture. She was a formidable woman who was said to have participated in warfare in the tradition of her mother's Illyrian people and had killed an Illyrian queen in battle. She was only in her mid-thirties, but she didn't have any designs on any of the dyadiki. Instead, she thought her teenage daughter should be the one to get married, and she didn't want her to marry just anyone. She wanted the girl to marry the king, Philip Arhideus. That's right, the empire still had kings, and they were still eligible bachelors. And by the way, if you're listening to the History of Byzantium podcast, you'll appreciate that they did indeed use the term Basileus. Sinane's daughter, she was called Adea when she was born, but at some point she changed her name to Eurydice, so that's what we'll go with, represented a threat to Perdiccas, 
as much as any change in the status quo did. This seemed to be Perdiccas's biggest issue, but he didn't hold much sway outside of Asia, as we have seen. And in fact, although he ruled Asia, his interactions with Python show that even there he was in a precarious position at times and hadn't really shored up everything. So, as the two women made their way down the royal road to find Philip Arhideus, Perdiccas sent his brother to intercept them. Perdiccas's brother lined up his army when he encountered the women and their entourage, and Sinane apparently became incensed at the threat. She upbraided him, and whether this was the original intent, she was killed during the confrontation. This was, let's say, not well received. Perdiccas was now ultimately responsible for the murder of Philip's daughter, one of the members of his Argia dynasty. This wasn't some friend of Alexander, it was his half-sister. Perdiccas had overplayed his hand, and his Macedonian troops in Babylon rebelled, and everything threatened to slip away. In response, Perdiccas did the only thing he felt he could do. He brought Eurydice to Babylon and had her marry Philip Arhideus. His devious plan, if that's what it was, completely backfired, and a rival, this time Eurydice, got exactly what she wanted. This pattern will become familiar with Perdiccas. Meanwhile, as the leading successor, he could probably marry anyone he wanted. And Perdiccas actually had two intriguing offers. One was Antipater's daughter, Nikea. If he chose her, the growing rivalry between the two men, which seemed like a budding civil war, but as of yet there was no actual fighting against each other, could quickly turn into a familial alliance. And keep in mind, Antipater, the leading figure in Europe, was of the old guard, had significant Macedonian loyalty, and had Craterus, now his son-in-law thanks to another marriage alliance, on his side. Perdiccas accepted the offer, but before he actually married Nikea, another offer appeared. This one was less about alliances and more about his own position. Alexander's mother, Olympias, sent Alexander's sister, Cleopatra, over to be Perdiccas's bride. Cleopatra couldn't marry Leonatus anymore like she had originally intended to because he died fighting the Greeks. She went over in the fall of 322 BC as a potential bride for Perdiccas. Perdiccas now had a choice. He could marry Nikea as he had planned, or he could say, you know what, never mind, we're calling this off, and marry Cleopatra. While the latter might cause an issue with Antipater, it might not be an irreconcilable slight. Perhaps he could marry Cleopatra and then throw some honorific bone to Antipater to calm him down. And marrying Cleopatra would give him legitimacy. Unlike the young Alexander IV, their child would be a full Macedonian-blooded grandson of Philip II. It was something he couldn't resist, so he came up with a diabolical yet ultimately foolish plan. Rather than telling Antipater that he couldn't marry Nikea anymore, which would be really awkward, his plan was about the only thing that could make the situation worse. He thought he would marry Nikea to keep the alliance going, but then he would marry Cleopatra, casting Nikea aside. This brilliant plan began to unravel right away when someone informed Antigonus, that satrap of Phrygia, of what was happening. 
Antigonus Monophthalmus, as I mentioned last episode, had been stuck in Asia Minor for the last decade. About 50 years old by 322 BC, he was older than Alexander's cohorts and was a longtime companion of Philip II. Unlike Antipater, who was a generation older, he wasn't some wise older advisor to Philip, he was a contemporary and possibly a friend or bodyguard. He was also a very large man and was probably pretty intimidating, not just due to his size. His name meant Antigonus the One-Eyed because he had lost an eye in battle and because the Macedonians didn't try very hard with nicknames. Antigonus was a competent enough general to be left in charge of keeping up the supply lines through Anatolia during and after the conquest. He probably didn't love missing out on all the action, and we really don't know why Alexander didn't take him along. Maybe it was his age. Maybe he thought Antigonus was too ambitious and didn't want him to get any more glory. Or just the opposite, maybe he thought he could really trust his father's friend with a sensitive and pretty independent role. Antigonus actually had to fight, and he won several rearguard battles against the Persians who, if they had been victorious, could have easily forced Alexander to come back and defend Greece or even Macedon. By the time of Alexander's death, he was relatively independent in Anatolia, not causing any trouble, ruling his wealthy fiefdom, and not of particular concern to Alexander. His first move after the death of the emperor, though, was pretty telling. Although he had a rather good, even friendly relationship with Eumenes, he did not aid him in his conquest of Cappadocia. So, the thing is, Cappadocia sort of had been part of the empire. At least Alexander had taken it and put his own satrap in place. But the old Persian satrap had retaken it and declared himself king there. He had clashed with his neighbor Antigonus, but neither could get the upper hand. One could speculate that Antigonus didn't want to help Eumenes take the region because, if anything, that Greek secretary should come and help him take it. The non-Macedonianness of Eumenes probably didn't help his feelings on this. Of course, all of it may have been a poke in the eye of Perdiccas, from whom Antigonus didn't appreciate taking orders. That was one of the first splits between the Diatiki, and after learning of Perdiccas's plan to marry Cleopatra, after marrying Nicaea, a more serious split occurred. This was aided when Perdiccas came to Cappadocia to help Eumenes out. Apparently, Perdiccas sent his messengers ahead, asking Antigonus to meet with him and discuss matters regarding his satrapy while the regent was nearby. So, just like Craterus, Antigonus probably feared for his own safety. Craterus had been in eastern Anatolia, so he made his way out of there first, but Antigonus decided, when he heard the Cleopatra news and he saw Perdiccas coming, to make for Europe as well. So it was now late in 322 BC, and Antipater and Craterus were in Greece, trying to dislodge the last remnants of the rebellious Greek city-states. But it was cold and snowy in the mountains, and when Antigonus showed up, well, this was Antipater's daughter we're talking about, so upon receiving the news, they immediately opted for a truce with the Greeks decamped, and got ready to head east. That part of Greece would have to wait. They were going to show Perdiccas a thing or two. So where are we at this point? Perdiccas had gone and helped Eumenes take Cappadocia, but in doing so, Antigonus and Craterus both fled west to Greece and linked up with Antipater. 
and Ptolemy down in Egypt was sort of running his own independent little kingdom. Perdiccas had also given Python an army, but then took away any means of him really keeping the army, so he at least had some control over most of Asia. But back to that discussion of his rivalry with Ptolemy, as 322 turned into 321 BC and winter turned into spring, the business of bringing Alexander's body back to Macedon was ready to go. It had been nearly two years since his death, but this was the conqueror of the world, so it had to be done right. Besides, Perdiccas probably wanted to make sure everything was perfect so he could accompany the body. Just like his possession of the royal heirs, Alexander IV and Philip Arhideus, possession of Alexander's body meant something, and it helped lend legitimacy to the region. For the journey to Macedon, Alexander's body would be held in sort of a traveling, gold-encrusted mausoleum on wheels. It was a rolling cart big enough for people to go inside to observe Alexander's body. It would be a slow, careful procession. And at some point, Perdiccas would join and eventually accompany it to the traditional burial site of Macedonian kings. Probably part of yet another well-thought-out diabolical plan. This one would be to march triumphantly into the Macedonian capital city of Pella, probably make a bunch of declarations in the name of Philip Arhideus and Alexander IV, and assert his control over the other diadochi under the protection of a euphoric Macedonian crowd. But instead, something happened. Either the train left too early, or maybe it didn't go along the planned route. Either way, it got Perdiccas' attention, and he sent some men to catch up with his trusted lieutenant who was leading the funeral train, and they came upon a surprise. Ptolemy, working with this trusted lieutenant, had sent a contingent of troops to jack the cart. He took it right out from under Perdiccas in his territory and brought it back to Egypt, probably at less a processional speed and more of a let's-get-the-hell-out-of-here speed. Whether or not the legitimacy Alexander's corpse provided was real, it was now in Memphis, Egypt, with Ptolemy and Perdiccas was continuing to look really bad at making diabolical plans. This, coupled with Ptolemy's conquest of Cyrenaica, without so much as a note asking for permission or even begging for forgiveness, was enough to show he had gone completely rogue. Perdiccas couldn't let this happen without seriously losing grip on power. It was more of a direct challenge to his authority than anything Antigonus, Antipater, and Craterus were doing, right? Except, not really, because Perdiccas was already getting word that Antigonus and crew were gathering forces in western Anatolia. Now, Perdiccas had a very large army at his service, which included a group known as the Silver Shields. The Silver Shields were veteran soldiers that were put in place by Philip when he reformed the army. And when I say put in place by Philip, I mean the individual guys were put in place by Philip. This group was a bunch of veterans in their 60s who had fought in Philip's conquest of Greece all the way through to India. They had adopted the name Silver Shields when Alexander coated their armor in silver after some particularly harrowing work in India. This group of 3,000 men was respected, revered, and feared. They were hypaspists, which was a special type of soldier in the Macedonian army. Rather than just describing them... Now is probably as good a time as any to describe the Macedonian army. 
There's no doubt that Alexander was a brilliant general, but the Macedonians seemed to be able to beat anyone head-to-head. Why was that? Philip had reformed the army to be something of a combined arms force that was dominant over the other forces of the time. Other Greek armies at the time fought with hoplites in phalanx formation, something I described a bit in the Marcus Furius Camillus episode in Season 1. Briefly, phalanxes would march in tight formations, often something like eight men deep. Each man would have a shield and a spear. The shield would make a wall, and the spears would stick out, and the two sides go at each other. Against unorganized or uncoordinated opponents, it could be devastating. I actually think Game of Thrones showed a pretty decent version of this when Ramsay Bolton's men surrounded Jon Snow and his buddies, although this wasn't quite how a phalanx would have looked because the Bolton shields were enormous, but it demonstrates the point nonetheless. When phalanx go against other phalanxes, though, you get a lot of mashing of shields and pushing and shoving. Phalanxes aren't particularly agile and only tend to work well moving forward due to those big unwieldy spears. If they get outflanked, it's over. The Macedonians went through a series of reforms under Philip II that turned it into a devastating machine the Greeks just couldn't hang with. Instead of the normal phalanx with their measly eight-foot spears, the Macedonians were equipped with something called a cerisa. The cerisa was an 18-foot spear, used with two hands. It was more cumbersome to wield than what the Greek hoplite was dealing with, so it forced some other reforms. They used shields strapped to their arms, which allowed for more maneuverability with their spears. It also forced Philip to protect his flanks more, as they were more vulnerable than the traditional Greek hoplites. So he did so in a few ways. He used his cavalry more, rather than just to keep other cavalry away from his flanks, but to really drive opposing infantry into the teeth of the Macedonian phalanx. And, since this is what brought us into this conversation, he also used the hypaspists. They were lighter infantry than the Sarissa-wielding phalanx, and looked more like a typical Greek phalanx, and they protected the flanks of the army. They were also considered elite troops who often performed irregular missions like clandestine outflanking of an opponent. Besides his pretty revolutionary use of combined arms, Philip also drilled his men regularly, something that wasn't really common in Greece, where citizen soldiers ran and grabbed their armor when an enemy was near in order to form a phalanx. So, back to today, or rather 331 BC, This new military machine had proven pretty darn effective so far. All of the generals had their own Macedonian phalanxes, although those elite hypaspists, the silver shields, were left in Anatolia by Craterus. They were incorporated into the army of the two kings of Macedon, that is, the army of Perdiccas. And that brings us back to Perdiccas and his always great decision-making. One could argue that Ptolemy hold up in a defensive position on the other side of the Nile River, could be dealt with later, and that the immediate threat was Antigonus, Antipater, and Craterus. Two old and respected Macedonian leaders, and the most popular general among the infantry, was certainly a threat. But Perdiccas had been embarrassed by Ptolemy, so he went down to Egypt with his army, and sent Eumenes, still loyal to the monarchy, 
and the agreed-upon power-sharing arrangement up to Asia Minor near the Hellespont to see how he might delay or stop the three generals coming after him. Eumenes, who couldn't get no respect because he was a secretary and not a general, and because he was a Greek and not a Macedonian, had both Perdiccas's brother Alcides and another general named Neoptolemus nominally under his command. But neither wanted to be subordinate to him and wouldn't cooperate. Alcides flatly refused to help his brother's cause, saying that he didn't trust his troops would even fight against Antipater. Neoptolemus just pretended to cooperate, all the while cooperating with Antipater and their lot to eventually abandon the cause. Eumenes, too, was wooed by his old friend Craterus, but he didn't trust Antipater and instead tried to get Craterus to cooperate with the regime. Neither side budged, so conflict was inevitable. But Eumenes got word about what Neoptolemus was doing and started by engaging with him. According to James Rom in The Ghost on the Throne, Eumenes, quote, put Neoptolemus to the test by summoning him to move his army forward. Neoptolemus responded by forming up troops for battle rather than bringing them into camp. His target was clearly not Antipater and Craterus, but Eumenes. It was a tight spot for the former bookkeeper surrounded by generals who mistrusted or scorned him and by their powerful infantry phalanxes. Yet he had confidence in his Cappadocian cavalry and his own strengths in the field, and he believed in the cause he was fighting for, the sovereignty of the Argiad dynasty. Unquote. The phalanxes attacked and Neoptolemus got the upper hand until Eumenes had brought his strong cavalry around to seize their baggage train. Then he came crashing through into the infantry from behind and, with almost no ability to defend themselves, those who survived the initial onslaught surrendered. Neoptolemus fled the field and his veteran Macedonian infantry was incorporated into Eumenes's army for real this time. Neoptolemus joined Craterus, Antipater, and Antigonus and convinced them that now was the time to strike when Eumenes was still celebrating his victory. Once his old troops saw Craterus, Neoptolemus promised, they would never attack their leading general, a man they all revered. So Craterus and Neoptolemus marched against Eumenes quickly, while Antipater and Antigonus went separately to prosecute the war against Perdiccas in different regions. In the summer of 321 BC, a few days after he had beaten Neoptolemus, Eumenes would have to fight him again, along with maybe the most respected infantry commander in the world. Eumenes knew his reputation, so he lied to his troops, telling them they'd be fighting Neoptolemus, who was a Molossian from Epirus, not a sissy Greek, but not a Macedonian either, as well as some barbarian they'd never heard of. And that was pretty smart. But what was really smart was making sure his phalanx would never even get to see Craterus. According to Plutarch, Eumenes, quote, would not set any Macedonian to engage Craterus, but appointed to that charge two bodies of foreign horse. They had orders to advance on first sight of the enemy and come close to fighting without giving them time to retire. And if they attempted to speak or send any herald, they were not to regard it for he had strong apprehensions that the Macedonians would go over to Craterus if they happened to know him. When they had passed a little hill that separated the two armies and came in view, they charged with such impetuosity that Craterus was extremely surprised 
and he expressed his resentment in strong terms against Neoptolemus, who, he thought, had deceived him with a pretense that the Macedonians would change sides. However, he exhorted his officers to behave like brave men and stood forward to the encounter, unquote. The horsemen came on so quickly that the phalanxes didn't have time to fully form up. Craterus was overwhelmed by the Cappadocian cavalry, and he was killed before any Macedonians fighting for Eumenes knew he was even at the battle, probably cursing the name of Neoptolemus. Eumenes, on the other hand, was on the other side of the battle, ready to take on his now personal enemy, Neoptolemus. The two were leading cavalry contingents and engaged with each other at full speed. They made contact amid the chaos of the battle and each grabbed the other, pulling one another down from their horses. Eumenes slashed Neoptolemus in the back of the knee, but Neoptolemus hobbled, got up, and wounded Eumenes several times. The two fought until Eumenes landed a blow on the neck of Neoptolemus that sent him reeling. Eumenes began to walk away when, like something out of a movie, Neoptolemus reached up and stabbed him in an opening in his armor near the groin. Neoptolemus, though, was too weak to do any real damage other than scaring the bejesus out of Eumenes, and the Molossian then finally fell over dead. Craterus's 20,000 strong phalanx of seasoned veterans never had the chance to engage in the battle, and with no cavalry to protect their flanks, they surrendered quickly and offered their services to Eumenes. But they fled to Antipater the first chance they had, and Eumenes wasn't in a position to pursue. Eumenes, though, had given a great victory to the regime in Perdiccas against their greatest threat. Perdiccas, on the other hand, was busy chasing after the threat to his pride in Egypt. He was fighting to keep the empire intact, and Egypt was a place where it was truly severed. But Ptolemy wasn't ready to march out and threaten Babylon, or Perdiccas's role as regent, at least not yet. Those guys in Anatolia were actually doing it. He didn't know it, but Perdiccas was finally getting one of his plans to work. Eumenes had defeated a rebellious army, and Craterus and Neoptolemus were dead. At the very least, Antipater and Antigonus were delayed and had lost their best general in Craterus. Perhaps if he had known of Eumenes' victory, he would have decided to link up with the Greek and quell the rebellion in the western satrapies. Instead, he was marching with his men to go take Memphis, the capital of Egypt, at least while the great city of Alexandria was being built. As they made their way to Egypt towards the end of 321 BC, Perdiccas made the case to his officers why Ptolemy needed to be destroyed. But they didn't buy it and basically suggested to him he should issue a pardon or just ignore the whole thing, so Perdiccas paid them all off to keep going. Obviously, he wasn't commanding the complete and total loyalty of his entire army. He decided to cross the Nile up north, on the easternmost branch on the delta, near a fortified city called Pelusium, basically the easternmost city in ancient Egypt. He had tons of experience crossing rivers and catching the enemy by surprise. Alexander had done it at least three times in major battles where Perdiccas held a leading position. But Perdiccas, if you hadn't realized yet, was no Alexander. As he approached the Nile Delta, he lost some troops to defection, and he wouldn't tell his men which spot he chose to cross for fear of the information leaking to Ptolemy. He led a nighttime march before crossing near a fort at daybreak. 
Ptolemy was in the fort to lead the defense, and Perdiccas tried to take it by force. The day was spent locked in battle, with the silver shields trying to scale the walls and elephants charging at it, but to no avail. Perdiccas couldn't take it, and he had to withdraw. He raced south down the eastern side of the riverbank, trying to find a crossing. He found one near Memphis that was fordable, where an island in the middle of the river would offer a respite. And he had another brilliant plan, to send his elephants a bit upriver to help slow down the force of the water. It not only did not work, it caused the river to rush harder as silt was kicked up and the river was deepened, flowing with more force. Maybe half his men made it to the little island, but then the river became too deep thanks to the elephants disturbing the silt upstream, and nobody else could ford it. Perdiccas's creative plan once again ended up being a huge mistake, and he had to call his men back. Unfortunately for those on that island, they couldn't ford the river anymore either, and they had to ditch their armor and swim for it. Some did make it, but again, the currents were pretty strong and quite a few were washed downstream. The commotion and the poor swimmers attracted a significant number of crocodiles, and Perdiccas ended up losing something like 2,000 of the 6,000 troops he had brought with him. At that point, Ptolemy caught up on the other side of the river. He recovered many of the bodies and gave them proper rites and cremations, something very important in the Hellenistic world. This was sending a signal to Perdiccas' men that he would respect and honor them, no doubt using allies within their camp to point out how great he was. This non-battle was as shameful a defeat as the Macedonian troops had ever seen. The commanding officers knew what they had to do. Antigenes, the leader of the Silver Shields, not Antigonus, sorry about the similar name, along with Python, Alexander's bodyguard, who had put down that Eastern Greek rebellion for Perdiccas, and Seleucus, a general who Perdiccas had appointed as leader of his companion cavalry, came into his tent and assassinated Perdiccas. With that, the regent was dead, and although Perdiccas had tried to run it as his own kingdom, there had at least been a sense of continuity of regime. Now it was unclear if Philip Arhidaeus or Alexander IV would even be around to continue the dynasty. Perdiccas's army supposedly wanted to name Ptolemy as the new regent, but he didn't want the role and put forth the name of Python, as well as that commander who stole Alexander's corpse trained for Ptolemy, as suitable regents. So with that, Ptolemy went back to Memphis, and the Perdiccas-less army marched back towards Asia ostensibly to take out Eumenes and anyone else that had been allied with their former leader, and to link up with Antigonus and Antipater. Keep in mind that the kings who Perdiccas allegedly served were still with this army. He hadn't left them behind. They were too important for his own legitimacy. On their way north, King Philip Arhidaeus's young wife, Eurydice, started to agitate for more control. She knew that there was a need for a regent, but she insisted that she'd be able to speak for her husband as well. As they marched up the east coast of the Mediterranean, they arrived in their meeting spot, a city called Triparadesis, and waited for Antigonus and Antipater. Eurydice's agitations really started to rile up the army. In particular, the silver shields, who had been promised pay by Perdiccas, were ready to be paid. 
Python wanted nothing to do with her and resigned his regency in favor of the incoming Antipater, the elder statesman of the group. However, Antipater wasn't there yet, and Eurydice used the brother-in-law of Perdiccas, who held a significant piece of the treasury in Tyre, and was now as much of an outlaw as the rest of Perdiccas's faction, as a potential patron for the army. By the time Antipater did arrive, and without money to pay the troops, it was near chaos. He spoke to the assembled men, but Eurydice, aware that the backlash from her own mother's murder would keep her safe, riled them up more. They were in open revolt, and they grabbed Antipater, threatening his life. Antigonus was in a different camp but saw the commotion, and he stormed into their ranks in his full armor with some other cavalry. The Silver Shields probably knew him by sight. They probably fought alongside him during Philip's conquest of Greece, although they might not have seen him since the late 330s. Most would know him anyway. There weren't too many giant generals with a missing eye. As the crowd was awed at the sight of Antigonus, he, along with Seleucus, was able to grab Antipater and make off with the old man. They calmed the leaders of the rebellion. Surprisingly, there isn't a record of the typical summary executions of the loudest agitators. Maybe this has to do with the respect the Silver Shields really did command. Eurydice wasn't able to cause a coup, if that actually was her aim, but she came close. With that, Antipater, Antigonus, and the others met to discuss how to divide the empire this time, now that Perdiccas was dead. A little over two years after the partition of Babylon, which had occurred days after Alexander's death, we got the partition of Triparadisus in 321 BC. The upshot of it was that the leaders were again assigned as satraps. Many remained in place. The Perdican loyalists were replaced by men who had switched sides on him, including Antigenes, the commander of the Silver Shields, who was given Susa, which happened to house part of the treasury that he was to use to pay his men the Silver Shields, and Seleucus, who was given Babylon. Ptolemy was basically allowed to keep the status quo in Egypt and all points west in Africa, He was already nominally independent, but the meeting made it all legal under the pretense that he could do what he wanted there, while the satrapy technically remained part of the empire. Antipater and Antigonus were named as the royal generals, basically the commanders-in-chief of Europe and Asia, respectively. Antipater, now nearly 80 years old, just wanted to go home and be in charge of Macedon and Greece. Antigonus certainly received quite a promotion. He went from satrap of central Anatolia for over a decade to suddenly becoming the most powerful man in the Macedonian Empire, if you could still call it that. He was essentially given the de facto role that Perdiccas owned at his death, one that Perdiccas probably could have kept much longer if he had just been content with it, regency over everything but Europe and Egypt. With that, Antigonus hightailed it back to his old turf in Asia Minor to take care of Eumenes. At the beginning of this episode, Perdiccas was by far the most powerful man in the empire, the regent to the entire kingdom. Ptolemy had his power, although it was concentrated in Egypt. And Antipater too was powerful as the leading general in Europe. 
Eumenes and Antigonus were both on the periphery. Antigonus, an old friend of Philip's who was near retirement age and in charge of a small satrapy in Anatolia, while Eumenes was still an unknown quantity and not really respected for his abilities as a general. By the end of the episode, Ptolemy was relatively in the same place as was Antipater, although Antipater had to march into Asia to keep his position. Perdiccas was, of course, dead, having overreached and failed at almost every opportunity he had. Eumenes had defeated a major Macedonian army to prove his value, although he still was on the periphery of the empire, being an outlaw and associated with Perdiccas. And Antigonus gained the most, becoming now essentially the most powerful man in the empire. Eumenes and Perdiccas couldn't have been more different. Both fought for the unity of the empire under the dual monarchy agreed upon right after Alexander's death. One was a Macedonian nobleman born into his role leading the army, but fighting bravely and earning his status as a leader. The other was a Greek scholar who was such a trusted advisor that he was handed a military without much experience and proved worthy of the generalship. While Perdiccas seemed to do everything he could to consolidate power and undermine his rivals, Eumenes tried to use his status as an outsider to negotiate between the different rivalries. Every one of Perdiccas's moves seemed to backfire against him. He wasn't even able to engage in battle with his rival, and his lieutenants had finally had enough and assassinated him. Eumenes, though, made some brilliant moves and won a battle nobody thought he could. With Perdiccas now gone, in the next episode, we'll follow Antigonus trying to chase Eumenes through the whole of the empire and watches the two go toe-to-toe with some of the biggest armies the ancient world had ever seen. But before we go, I just want to give a couple of quick thank yous. First to listener Peter Rojas, who added The Almost Forgotten to his list of history podcasts that he likes listening to. Uh, It's a good list with some podcasts that I listen to, too. So I'll include the link on the website if you want to go check it out. I also wanted to thank the History of Ancient Greece podcast. They uh, promoted this podcast through their Twitter account, and I got some new followers that way. So thank you. And I hadn't heard of the History of Ancient Greek podcast yet, so I checked it out. And it's really good. I'm on episode 10 or 11 now. I've been listening to it. Um, since about two weeks ago, and I'm really enjoying it. So because of that, I will go on iTunes and give him a review uh, after this, which leads me to my last point, which is, other than going to Susa and stealing 700 gold talents and delivering them to me, the best thing you could do for this podcast would be to go on iTunes and leave a review, uh, certainly leave a rating at the, at the minimum, So if you have time, please go do that. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. As always, you can check out the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. Send me an email, almostforgottenpodcast at gmail, or tweet to me at the almost forgot. 